Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Welcome to this special Floating in Darkness episode of the Orbital Perspective podcast. In this episode, we'll be making a deep dive into one of the key messages contained in my new book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution. 
The book describes how my experience as a combat fighter pilot and as an astronaut has illuminated a path towards understanding the meaning of life and our place in the universe. I know that's a pretty tall order, but uh, <laughs> I'll leave it up to you guys to figure out if uh, I made a dent in that mystery. But this episode was originally aired live as part of my five-part Floating in Darkness live stream event series. If you haven't registered for this free series, you can do so at floatingindarkness.com. And as a special gift for tuning into this episode, if you use the coupon code FUTURE on the pre-order tab of floatingindarkness.com, you will get 25% off the retail price of the hardback book and a free ebook download coupon. Thank you so much for being aboard for this journey of adventure. And now, it's on to the show. Pure white light streams out from behind Earth. I am engulfed in colorless radiant light that seems to be emanating out of cold emptiness and traveling through cold nothingness. The light streams over and around me and a hint of peaceful serenity awakens inside me. Beyond my view of the sparkling ISS, a rocky coastline on an unrecognized continent drifts into view. Sunlight bathing newly awakened snow-capped mountains into the glory of a new day. I imagine there are people down there somewhere, just starting their day, who are also witnesses to this exquisite beauty from a different but no less compelling perspective. I wish we could share notes. The complex immensity of the ISS against the backdrop of our indescribably beautiful Earth 240 miles below thrust me into a singularity. The entire universe peels away the blanket of danger, the thoughts of upcoming tasks, the feelings of fatigue, the excitement of being in space are all displaced by a singular vision of beauty. The truth that is blatantly apparent from this vantage point is that every living thing on the planet and the planet itself are inexplicably interconnected and interdependent. What's obvious from this vantage point of physical detachment from Earth is that we are not from Earth. We are of Earth. All of us. Every living creature. Hey everyone. That's a, a good way to start off. We are not from the earth. We are of the earth, every single living creature on the planet. Welcome to episode two of the Floating in Darkness live event series. I'm, I'm really happy that you're here with us. I'm coming to you live from the campus of the University of Colorado in Boulder. And uh, I'd like to take a moment 
to recognize a senseless tragedy that happened not less uh, or less than two miles from where I'm standing right now. And my heart goes out to everybody who's affected. My prayer is that their suffering is reduced. Um, and this incident is uh, a perfect example of why this episode is so important. The topic of this episode is so important, which is how can we transmute our martial instincts inward? How can we overcome our divisiveness? Um, we have got to transcend our differences and come together to discuss and solve the problem of gun violence in America. And we need to do that in a conversation that is rational uh, and not tainted by the narrow desires of special interest groups. Now, I don't have to tell anybody that we live in very divisive times. And some of that polarization comes from the very technology that's intended to bring us together. The echo chamber walled boxes that we have been placed in by commercially and politically driven algorithms are putting us on a trajectory that is dangerous and is leading to disaster. It's a trajectory that we need to correct. So I wanna begin our conversation about overcoming divisiveness um, from a perspective of combat. Combat is a, an interesting perspective. Combat is the ultimate us versus them environment, but it's also an environment that gives us priceless lessons into human nature, uh, into the human experience, into what leads people to, to do selfless acts. And it is a priceless example of the power of unity. Um, I want to remind everybody, uh, and, I, and to do that, I'm going to play a video. And the video is an excerpt uh, from Floating in Darkness. Uh, and just to set the stage, um, it's a scene in the, in the book where uh, it was just after Desert Storm. So I had just come back from, from my combat tour in, in Desert Storm. I'm uh, sitting on a porch, uh, having a couple of beers with a, with a good friend uh, who was recently, recently in the story, repatriated as a prisoner from, from being a pr prisoner of war. And this was uh, part of our discussion. And I wanna remind everybody that uh, as you watch the video and throughout the whole episode today, especially when I have uh, my special guest, uh, Dan Schilling later, uh, that this is not just a conversation between Dan and I, this is a, this is a conversation amongst all of us. So put your comments and questions uh, uh, up and we'll, we'll address them, especially during the video is a good time to, to start uh, thinking about uh, how you could get involved uh, with, this, with this conversation. And with that, I wanna, I wanna play this video. Chapter 7, The Top of the Mountain I then share my homecoming. I describe landing in Newark Airport and seeing my father and other family members at the gate for a brief reunion on my layover destined for South Carolina and reuniting with Carmel. As I recount this, a previously unacknowledged awareness bubbles up from somewhere deep inside me. For the first time, I realize how surreal the return to normalcy has been. For me, I felt simultaneously overcome with joy to be back in the arms of my country and loved ones, while somehow 
feeling out of place. Part of me wants to be back in the war, back in the action. I don't understand this disconnect. Even though I'm a warrior, I hate war. War is humanity's biggest failure. Why do I miss it? Then, the reason for this disconnect dawns on me. Even though there was a lot to complain about during the war, like stupid Mickey Mouse regulations and senior officers vying for career advancement opportunities, in the big scheme of the entire conflict, those things were outliers that barely rose above the background noise. I felt a belonging in combat unlike any I had ever experienced. I felt a primordial bond. All of us in combat were inextricably dependent on each other for our very lives. We were not only fighting for our country, we were fighting for each other. Returning to the comfort of a civilized life seems mundane and trivial. Even though my reunion with Carmel, the love of my life, has been heaven on earth and a prayer answered, I, on some level, feel generally disoriented. Something is missing. Worse yet, I've noticed things about my country I've never noticed before. In spite of jubilation over winning the war and being on the receiving end of a public desire to do better by the Gulf War vets than the country did for our Vietnam vets, I have noticed in a profound way the deep divisions in America. Tuning into the news and seeing pundits spewing contempt for others simply for having a different opinion is now repugnant to me. I have heard rampant us versus them sound bites coming from all directions. I know that part of what I was fighting for was the freedom we all cherish so dearly, including freedom of speech. But this is different. Having the right to free speech does not mean you have a right to your own facts or your own truth. Having free speech is not a free pass to spew hatred or to abandon civil discourse. Watching the news, I've seen that disproportionate attention is being put on our perceived differences, leading to divisions between rich and poor, black and white, male and female, Democrat and Republican, urban and rural, educated and uneducated. Of course, I acknowledge that people put too much attention on these differences, even before the war. But after emerging from the Iraqi conflict, I see division in a new light. In the war, all those perceived differences melted away into insignificance. All that mattered was, are you fighting with us or against us? Are you part of our tribe or the enemy tribe? For us, it wasn't even whether you were American. All you had to be was part of the coalition. Now, back in the civilian world, it seems that most Americans have completely forgotten the bond that we all share as countrymen. It seems we are no longer Americans first. It seems that what is more important than being Americans is our perceived differences. What is missing is the community we shared in combat, the camaraderie of being brothers and sisters in arms, of being part of something bigger and more important than ourselves, of being willing to die for each other simply because we are part of the same community. During the war, it was as if each of us were all part of an overarching superbody. Each of the individual soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines of the various nations aligned against Iraq were like neurons of a giant brain. The cerebral cortex of that brain directing the activities of the body was headquarters. 
our aircraft, ships, and weapon systems were the muscles of the giant body. We were combined, aligned, and organized into an overarching structure with a mission, more important than its parts. In this case, the function of this brain was to punish, destroy, and liberate. Although our national leadership seemed to do much better in this conflict than past conflicts, the analogy breaks down when you introduce Washington. Maybe the politicians are the amygdala, the reptilian brain responsible for fear, anxiety, and aggression. It seems that I've come back to a world with the mantra, every man for himself. A world of corporate and individual corrupt greed. A world ripe with selfish Wall Street con artists trying to find their next sucker. A nation where it seems some politicians care more about themselves or their party than the country. A nation that has forgotten its motto, E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. This world is in sharp contrast to the one-for-all mindset of military combat that I just left. Even seeing something as seemingly trivial as someone littering makes my blood boil. But whenever I'm with Carmel and the twins, this post-combat fog lifts. They remind me that I have a mission, that I have others depending on me. I have a purpose, I have a tribe. All right, we're back. Um, hope you like that video. I think it's uh, pretty pertinent to the times we're in right now. I want to welcome everybody who's joining. Thanks for all the comments uh, uh, and questions that are coming in. Uh, hey, Mike, Michael, I, I will t check out your post. Uh, Brian, Steve, uh, Penny, uh, Maya, Keith, hey, everybody. I uh, do want to pop up a couple of comments. Um, Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Mike. Here's one from Michael uh, on the uh, we're not from Earth, we're of Earth. Um, and uh, here's one from uh, Brian. Yes, it is, it is long overdue, and uh, we are more than our, our media-based profile. Um, from Steve, thank you for honoring what's happening uh, and for uh, calling out how technology is being used to pull us apart, and I look forward to learning from you and your special speaker, a special guest. So with that, why don't we why don't we talk about our special guest? So my special guest today uh, is Dan Schilling, uh, an amazing guy. Uh, and we're going to have a he's a perfect guy to have this conversation with about how do we transmute our martial instincts inward and how do we overcome our divisiveness. And uh, I will introduce him uh, via this video. Dan Schilling spent more than 30 years in the military, primarily as a combat controller and special tactics officer, though he proudly started his career as an infantry grunt. His numerous combat and clandestine deployments have taken him around the world and include Operation Gothic Serpent, popularly known as Black Hawk Down from the movie and the book bearing the same name, where he is credited with saving the lives of a U.S. Army Ranger and U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 member while under fire. He later founded and then served as the first commander of two special operations squadrons. His military certifications include HALO and Static Line Master Parachutist, Special Forces Combat Diver, and Demolitions Instructor. A purveyor of adrenaline-fueled endeavors, he holds the Guinness World Record for the most base jumps in 24 hours, 201, a feat he conducted to benefit children who have lost a parent in special operations through the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. 
He is also a professional-rated demonstration skydiver, speedwing pilot, and volunteer ski instructor with Wasatch Adaptive Sports, helping those with disabilities to experience the thrill of downhill skiing. Dan is now a full-time rider. His new book, The Power of Awareness, is designed to prevent people from being victims before a crime is committed and will be available at retailers everywhere June 1st. His last book, Alone at Dawn, was a New York Times and Amazon number one international bestseller. He and his wife, Julie, live in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah, where he can usually be found skiing or flying his Speedwing in the vicinity of Alta Ski Resort. Hey, Dan. How's it going? Hi. Can you hear me? Dan, you're uh, free. I, I think I've got you, Ron. I'm having bit of a transmission reception trouble. Can you hear me okay? I can. You were frozen there for a little bit. Um, but we got we got you now. How, how you doing? <laughs> can you hear me? Dan, can you hear me? Yeah, I've got you. You're freezing a little bit uh, as well. It's the benefits of modern technology. If I caught that comment from one of one of our viewers, so it's it's how we go about these things in the modern era and during COVID. But uh, if you got me, I think I've got you now. Yeah, yeah, I think we I think we've got you, um, folks who are, are watching. Let us know what you're seeing, um, and because uh, I think either Dan or I are having some uh, connectivity problems. So uh, if if we can figure out where that's coming from, we'll we'll be able to fix it. But Dan, thanks for thanks for being on this episode. It's a, as you as you as we've discussed, it's a very very important topic, uh, and you have a really unique perspective uh, to address that topic. And maybe to start out, can you? Can you tell us a story of your time in Somalia and and what you know the the book that you wrote uh, Alone at Dawn and and just tell us tell us your your story there and 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 um, and hopefully there, and I'm sure we could draw some some really good lessons from that. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm still getting a bit spotty transmission, but uh, I think for for our discussion on this, you know, my experiences with combat are similar to yours in that there's a very strong sense of belonging that is, is profound at the individual level, and then it transcends that and becomes something that's important to everybody that's involved. But I think there's a this dichotomy there that there's a problem that comes with um, too much tribe identity because this is where you it fosters that us versus them, which I think is essential to what you and I would hope to talk about today and, 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 and bring everybody together on, which is transcending some of that. But, you know, my, my, my experience, particularly in Somalia, but, but in other places where I've experienced combat, you know, Somalia in particular is tribal. Uh, as a culture, tribe is everything in that country. And it's, it provides the backdrop by which you, you measure what is important to you. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to see that from the outside. But, of course, as soon as we were introduced into the equation, and, and I do think that the events in Somalia that, that we're talking about, this is 1993, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, it's Black Hawk Down. Most people know it from that um, as a title of a movie and a book. Um, and But to me, it was America at its best, which was we were here to help. There wasn't oil involved. There wasn't some other national foreign policy it was merely to try and stabilize things and stave off starvation. So I felt good about that part of it. Um, but, you know, in the military, we really do foster an, 
us versus them mentality in order to get people to do the kinds of things that are so difficult in combat, which is to kill other humans. And, 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 and that's a problem, I think, and it's, it's part of the, the demonization of others that is so prevalent that makes it difficult to overcome uh, in modern society. But at the same time, I found for me that combat was also almost an, one of the ultimate expressions of love, which is how you care for other people so much that you will definitely make this deliberate decision to risk or sacrifice your life for people that you care about. And these are not family members. These are people that you may have only known months or in some cases years that are you know, fellow comrades. And, and, and for me, that became a defining experience in my life for those couple reasons. I recognize that people are really fostering an us versus them, which I, I have recoiled from in my own life. But at the same time, I came to embrace other people that have become more important to me than than almost anyone else in my life, and I would still sacrifice myself for today. Yeah, I, I, I and okay, I, that came. Did you, Ron? Are you getting me? I was making sure I'm actually not cutting out. No, no. We, we, you, your video, at least on my end, is freezing occasionally. We do ha have some comments from some folks that are saying that it's your video that's freezing. So I think it is on on your end. But we, the audio didn't drop out at all. We heard you. At least I heard you the whole time, uh, folks. If I'm wrong, correct me. Uh, but you bring up some really good points, and and I write about uh, that very thing in Floating in Darkness, and and I, you know I make the point that it it took the crucible of combat to to really learn the the true meaning of love and and what and what that means, and and you know identifying with something bigger than yourself, and and you know tribalism has you know a lot of negative aspects and you know you you were exposed firsthand in somalia to, to that um those those negative aspects especially when you introduce tribal warfare um but tribalism also brings out some really good qualities that we talked about like selfless action and, and selflessness and generosity and everything else and so it pr part of what we need to do as a species is to figure out how to be the first species in the history of life on this planet to cooperate on a planetary scale, right? To be able to define our community as the earth, to be able to define our tribe as earthlings. Uh, and I think once we're able to do that, then the negative aspects of tribalism will kind of dissolve into insignificance, into irrelevancy. Uh, and what will be left is all those positive aspects. And, and Dan, can you maybe share some of, some of that with it from your experience in combat and and um, where you see where you see the the positive aspects of tribalism being applied to to our challenges and problems? Well, yeah, I think one of the positives of tribe and tribalism is the resilience that it fosters in the individual. Sebastian Younger book, Sebastian Younger's book Tribe was a very yeah. important book to me. And in processing some of my own PTSD or in trying to make sense of what I had experienced and what I've seen in the world in so many places, you know, the, the conflict that is resident in daily life is a part of daily life for a lot of people in reality. And I think what matters is how to come to an interpretation of tribe to transcend that which might be destructive at a certain level. And I think that's in a middle ground. You know, there's at a, at a smaller group level, tribe is almost always positive. Family is a great tribal unit. And 
you know, even small groups, small communities, which were more common previously on planet Earth because there were fewer people and they weren't as heavily concentrated in big areas. But then when you transcend that and you get into the kind of nationalism that is, you know, authoritarian populism and things like that, where it's us versus them. And I like to use in America, Democrats versus Republicans. Democrats and Republicans piss me off because, <laughs> you know, I, I am, I'm very agnostic. I'm not one or the other. I'm a very centralist person, central person uh, by philosophy, but it's the demonization of others when you get to these larger levels that become destructive. And Ron, you, you and I would see this the same, and I'd be interested in what people thought who are participating. That's what fosters things like mutually assured destruction and the, you know, the deployment of nuclear weapons, something you're very familiar with more than I. And that's where it becomes an existential threat. Yeah, actually, mutually assured destruction is the is the title of chapter one of Floating Darkness, <laughs> right. which, which and you, you know it's interesting because the book is an evolution. The, the writing in the book is an evolution itself, and so the writing changes from the beginning to the end. The words I use, the the worldview that I espouse changes, and the chapter opens uh, with me reporting to nuclear alert uh, in West Germany during the during the Cold War. You know, at the tip of the sword there, and. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but you know, th th there's a certain level of insanity. In hindsight, looking back, there's a certain level of insanity in, <laughs> in that, maybe a great deal of insanity. Um, and so, you know, we talked about, we used the example of, of Somalia back in 1993 as an example of tribal warfare. Uh, we can use the United States of America right now as an example of tribal warfare too. We are, we are in a state yeah. of tribal, tribal warfare right now. Uh, I mean, the most obvious example is storming the Capitol, uh, you know, not long ago, uh, where that really translated into actual warfare, uh, where people lost their lives. And so that polarization is the cause of this, this, this demonization, this, this uh, dehumanization, this, uh, you know, defensive reaction to anything, to any idea that is counter to what you think is, is uh, true. Uh, to react immediately and forcefully with a defensive action, and some in some cases a violent defensive action, whether that's violence, in, you know, actual violence or violence with words, uh, is is just um, leading us uh, on a path towards disaster. And it's something that we need to get off of right now. I think you're frozen again. I, I agree. I think you know. And, and am I? Fro can you hear me now? I, I can. I can. Yep. <laughs> or I, okay, good. I'm back. You know, and but and I don't mean to demonize all Republicans or Democrats because to me it's the professional politicians by nature, either that are elected officials or make their living by fostering their position in absolute terms and in, in demonizing the other side. It is about dialogue in this country. And and for me historically, that's what has made America to to paraphrase Reagan, the other shining beacon on a hill that I think most people would agree we've lost and you know how to get back to that i think you know how to get back to some place where you can find common ground or at least enter into dialogue to search for common ground to remove the you know the vitriol and and the and the extremism of the equation to me that is the path forward in order to do that and to do that you just have to open up 
and reveal yourself first, I think, to other people. It's a lesson I learned in another area of my life, which was my own struggles with processing things that I have done. You know, I've inflicted extreme violence, I've experienced extreme violence, and I've witnessed it as a, a third party. And you know, what I've experienced, what I've come to conclude that is, is, you know, killing people, even when justified, because you're in a war and you're fighting somebody else, absolutely does nothing to advance you as a person. That's my personal belief. There is no upside for you as an individual to killing other people, regardless of the circumstances. You may have to do it, say to defend your life if you're being attacked or assaulted by a criminal, but in the end, your act will, will diminish you. But the diminishment also leads to the ability to search for wisdom or 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 understanding of that. And I think that's the key to transcending tribalism. Yeah. And I would I would caps encapsulate that in the statement that people have to mature or have experienced things enough to want to transcend right. tribalism in a negative way. Yeah, exactly. And th- thank you for sharing that because it is it's spot on and it's it's part of the tool that's necessary to tra- transmute those martial instincts inward um and you know part of our transcending this polarization is to realize that we're being manipulated like i said in the in the opening of this there are, are yeah. commercially commercially motivated and politically motivated algorithms that are basically designed to keep this polarization in place and to accelerate it because there is gain. People are gaining from this divisiveness. And, you, you know, the first, the yeah. first thing I tend to do is when I, when I see a post or I see something, I, 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 I assess how that's affecting me is did my, did my pulse just increase? Did my breathe? Did I, my fist just clench? Did I start to get defensive? Did I start to get aggressive? Uh, if so, I've probably just been manipulated. And I need to take a step back and, and and try and figure out what's going on here because there there are, I mean we see it over and over again. Families are being ripped apart because you know one part of the one one person in the family has a different political view than another part of the family, and and that means that they've been separated into their own echo chamber walled boxes and with walls separating them. And there is no there is no you, you have to get outside the box to be able to get back to to those family members. Um, so we we have had a lot of comments come on. I I, I do want to I do want to address some of these. Um, here's one from uh, from Keith Heitner. Uh, from the perspective of being in the states during the Gulf War, I think that's the last time our country felt truly united. Um, that was that was a benefit, you know, of all the conflicts that have happened in the last thirty or so years. Uh, you know, having been somebody on the inside of that conflict. Uh, it definitely felt like we had the the unified support of the country behind us, and that was that was really a, a wonderful experience. Um, and, and Dan, just jump in anytime you want. I'm just going to throw some uh, some more comments up. Um, well, so to that to that observation, I think there are some other. That was a, uh, I think it was Keith was Keith. the name, but Keith. And one yeah. thing I would add to that because I, I agree, it was a time when the country did feel come together. Part of that was based also on history. The recovery from Vietnam War, but it's also a crisis, and crisis bring crises bring people together. I would say another time that Americans felt, you know, collectively that we had to band together and we felt emotionally connected to others 
was Katrina, and then even Rita and Ike, these hurricanes that were quite devastating, always galvanized people to transcend their, their smaller or maybe less beneficial tribalism. Be but it, it's always a crisis that tends to concentrate that energy in a positive way. I think what requires more sophistication and dedication by all of us, including me, is to, when the crisis recedes, to, to, to try and tap into that as an individual and remember that's what was important. Um, right. Otherwise, it's all just simians, you know? Yeah. Chimpanzees are incredibly tribal and, right. uh, you know, and they're incredibly violent, but they understand the things at a certain level. I would like to think we're a little bit more mature than chimpanzees. Well, it hasn't been demonstrated lately. Um, so speaking of tribalism, um, this is from Steve. People are making money from dividing us. Fox News business models destroying democracy for profit. We need to counter the fear-based narrative with a story of what we can do when we come together as one. So I, I agree with that statement, but I would also add to that statement, both ends of the political spectrum have a, have, have a you know, are destroying democracy for money um, because both ends of the political, both, both fringe elements, whether you put Fox News in that category or not, but both both fringe fringe uh, ends of the political spectrum uh, are uh, accelerating divisiveness for profit uh, and, and, would, and, and manipulating that. us. I'm sorry. Yeah, so, so to Steve's comment and to your point, what you were building on there is that he recognized that these are professional organizations whose objective or at least business model is to foster these things because that's what how that's how they make money. One of the things I like to take a step back and you know and up to a maybe more twenty thousand foot view is that you know recognize that when you're watching television, any television, that is a medium designed to put you into a state of passive re receptivity so you're susceptible to suggestion that's why people pay five million dollars for 30 seconds during the super bowl because it works it's okay that it works because it works for a reason this is the way humans process things and connect with things and pushing emotional buttons those are effective what i would encourage anyone who's listening steve for you too as you talk about this is whenever you see something like that and it's Tehran's comment if you feel suddenly angry or emotionally even happy about something is to ask the question, why do I feel this way? And recognize that whoever is making you feel that way has a deliberate purpose. And you, it's important to try and understand what that purpose is. If it aligns with you, understand why that is good, but also why that can be bad. Because if it makes you feel good because other people are less than you or not even human, that's not a positive message. Exactly. And um, I do, oh, I do want to just cut out there again. Nope. You're good. You're good, Dan. But I do want to, I do want to jump in for a second and uh, I want to share with uh, everyone a deal that we have here for, for, for listeners right now. We we're in the pre-order campaign of flowing in darkness. We really want to get this message out as, as far as we can. And so We've got uh, this 25% uh, promo code uh, future. If you use that on flowingdarkness.com forward slash order, uh, and that that uh, the 25% is good for the next 24 hours. Uh, so jump on there if, if you want to pick up a copy. It's coming out May 4th, um, and I'm, I'm really excited about uh, 
where that is going. And uh, it's it's been a wonderful journey. And I want to bring everybody along with me on this journey because most, if not all of what we're talking about is, is in this book. Um, and um, we are living in, in, in very divisive times. And I just want to see, um, this is from Penny. I believe the device in this so, is well, actually- I would just like to dovetail onto your book for those listening. Uh, um, is, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, for all of you, I think Ron's book is actually brilliant. Um, it's a great insight building on what we're talking about. And I, I actually, my takeaway was, this is what you are trying to accomplish, Ron. But uh, for those of us who've never left Earth, I really encourage you to, to pick up a copy because it provides this great perspective. Personally, I feel cool just because I get to be on a podcast with Ron. <laughs> so my, my cool credibility has gone up 30% or something. But uh, but the fact is, is like it helps us form these opinions because your orbital perspective, and I love the backdrop, and I really love the, the jacket of the book. Ron and I have talked about this before because it provides this really cool science fiction, almost harkening back to, you know, uh, some of the great science fiction writers, Robert Heinlein and, and other people you may have known, but but it really it, it projects this, what does it mean to us as a species to view ourselves from this higher elevation? And so few of us have had that experience, Ron. I think it's just a, I think it's a brilliant part of the book. That, thank you, Dan. I really, I really appreciate that. And we have a comment here from somebody who has a similar last name. So <laughs> this, this, it's I, my I sister. Yeah, I think this is your sister. So that's, a, that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> yep, and uh, I, I think victim mentality is, is something to be aware of. But um, yeah, yeah. So, so the point um, Penny's making about being fear-based, yeah, yeah. divisiveness is fear-based. Um, I think is a really, really good point because, and we've talked about this many times on, on, on the Orbital Perspective podcast. I talk about this extensively in the book. I've, I've talked about this on and on. There, there are two, in, in my view, there are two really, really powerful methods to spur action, to motivate people towards action. One is fear, and the other one is awe and wonder. And both are very, very powerful. The difference between the two, I mean, one is, well, there's a lot of differences. One is, one is productive and one is destructive. One is positive, one is negative. But also, one only works in the short term, and that's fear-based. I, I don't believe that fear-based is effective long-term motivator action. I think it only motivates short-term action. And, and a lot of times what is good in the short term is horrible in the long term. And But awe and wonder-based motivation, on the other hand, I think is good in both the short term and the long term because, because it opens up the mind. It, it, it opens up your ability to collaborate and cooperate with others. It, it, it uh, allows rational conversations to occur. And so um, fear-based conversations are not usually, ra you know, rationally based. And so, um, Dan, what do you, what do you think about that? Any comments on, on what Penny brought up? I do, because I think, I think fear has the ability, like you said, is short term, but to instantly galvanize people in a way that aligns them toward action. And that's the effectiveness of fear based motivation on wonder are deeper, I think, um, although some people would argue that fear can be deeper because it might be existential. You might feel like, hey, I'm going to die. But awe and wonder is this thing that 
allows you to be more reflective. You know, and I'd even I'd throw a third category on there for long term motivation. And I think that's love uh, as yeah. a word. And, you know, it's one of the things I talk about when I talk about combat is, you know, is the fact that it is it is these gestures of love. I even wrote a, a previous book on the on the subject. What I most people think is a war story, I think is a love story of self-sacrifice. And I think that's the other area that allows us to really commit ourselves. And you know, it goes that can go back to tribalism, you know, love for family, your children or your parents are the two strongest, typically, you know, because people as a couple will concentrate their energy on those efforts and those people and and that those are long-term objectives and they're very profound which is why when you lose them your wife or your husband or your children or your parents it's so profound more so than fear and the trick is of course those are not they're not as galvanizing to instant action and that's why we have to pay more more attention to them than the fear that's what i think how i would sort of wrap that yeah, um, let me pop this up from Penny again. The opposite of love is fear, and fear can be many things. Um, I don't know. I don't know that love has an opposite, <laughs> and to, it might be worth. Oh, I'm sure it's worth pulling on this a little bit and, and talking about and, and having a conversation because I really think you're onto something. I, I really do think, you know. Love is a, is a very very powerful driving force, and and when I say on wonder, uh, what has dawned on me since since you you brought that up is that that's part of it. I mean that that on wonder is a is an aspect of love, and, and I really, agree. And, and really, it's love. And to me, when you boil what love is down to its basic essence, <laughs> if you will. It's the recognition in another person of your shared existence. It's it's basically when you when you say you love somebody, whether you're doing this consciously or not, what you're saying is I recognize myself in you. I recognize the unity. I recognize a unity in you, um, and that this wall, this false shadow illusion wall that separates all people between me and the person I'm exp expressing my love to has disappeared, or at least I've gotten a glimpse. I've gotten a glimpse through it. I, I, to me, that's what true love is. Um, and, you know, there's lots of, lots of things that uh, we describe as love that aren't love at all, but true love is that recognition. And that recognition, I believe, drives you to do things like potentially sacrifice your life for somebody else uh, because you recognize that unity. And you recognize that that unity is much bigger than you. Uh, and that that unity is what needs to be protected uh, above all else. Um, Dan, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I think I agree. Uh, it, and, I, and you had cut out a little bit there, but I, I agree. I, I think all, on that same theme, I think the love connection that you have with others has a way of validating your existence as well. It's a very can be a very real thing for you. It is it allows you in, in a positive way to know that you exist. And it goes back to something you and I have talked about in the past. One of the things I like and it's and it's thematic and it's part of the core of your book is that everything is connected. To understand that everything is connected sometimes can be this sort of remote, you know, sort of scientific or philosophical position for people, but I don't think that's the the way it really has to be. And one of the things I like to use when I give speeches, and I guess here we are, is that if you want to 
and if you want to understand how that you are actually connected to the broader universe, and by that I mean the backdrop to our event today of space and the far distances, if you look at the stars at night and you look at a star one, pick any star you like, when you are looking at that, that light is a direct connection from that body in space, hundreds of thousands or even millions of light years away directly to your eye. You are connected in that instant absolutely by a beam that has extended from that place. Traveled millions of light years to get to your eye, but it's directly connected to it. That's how real that is. And I, I always find that fascinating, but I can kind of geek out on that. Well, I mean, I think that's those are glimpses into the into that unity, but that unity exists constantly, and it's and it's com it's comprehensive, uh, regardless of not if you see that light or not. It's always, I mean, that connection is always there, and you know, on a personal level, a person to person level, that's what's missing right now. Because when we get placed in these echo chamber walled boxes, when when we're separated by our you know, political affinities or our races or our religions or whatever, whatever other artificial thing we want to put it in to separate us. What we're doing in that process is we're saying, I do not recognize that unity. I do not, I do not recognize our implicit wholeness. I don't recognize that there's something bigger than just me. I'm the most important thing right now and everything else is subservient to, to my own ego, if you, if you will. And so that, that is what drives that. And so going back to the manipulation, you know, when my, when I read something and my fists clench up and my blood pressure goes up and all that kind of stuff. And I realize, Oh, I'm, I'm being manipulated. If I don't realize that that's me in that happy to be inside this little box and not that that's me consciously or unconsciously placing myself in the box because we have control of how we how we respond to to anything that we're exposed to and if we're exposed to something and we retreat into our little comfortable box where you know we know everybody's opinion matches our opinion uh then we're doing ourselves an injustice and we're doing the world an injustice yeah i think it diminishes us it right. diminishes you as an individual and it diminishes humans collectively and the sad part about that and i think the positive message that we should continue to go for is that limits us from a species and as individuals from reaching our full potential and i exactly. believe humans should always try and re reach their full potential it's it's aristotle in a, in a nutshell which is you know to be happy and he was the first greek philosopher to really talk about happiness as something that's important uh, and I'm a very big fan of Aristotle, but to him, that happiness meant to reach your full potential on something that is worthy of your best efforts. And I think that's well, an important thing to make sure. Is it worthy of who you are? Exactly. If you really think that it's worthy of your best effort to call other people, you know, baby killers or, you know, want to destroy your homeland, uh, I think you're you're missing that's not full potential. Yeah, and that's a that's a really good point, Dan. And the the main tenant of the book and the subtitle of Floating in Darkness oh, I, is a I, journey. I'm is afraid a of, journey of, oh, is a journey of evolution. And um, I talk. So basically, what I'm doing is I'm using uh, the allegory of of events that have happened in my life as a, an allegory for the evolution of society. And I, I equate it in the book to to breath, right? And and 
when we breathe, when we when we inhale, we take in, we become, uh, we 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 bring in from the outside uh, to ourselves. Uh, and I equated the inhale, the first inhale of evolution was the first giant leap of evolution, where the point where we actually became human, the point where we became self-aware, where we realized that you know our con- we could project our conscious thought forwards or backwards, billions of years, that that we are distinct individuals. Um, that we are in relation with others. That was the first giant leap of, of evolution, the first inhale of evolution, if you will. But you can only inhale for so long before you have to exhale. And when you exhale, you let go, you give up, you give up of yourself. Uh, and this next giant leap of evolution, which we're right in the middle of right now, is the realization that the self that you're self-reflecting on is not just an individual, but it's part of a larger cosmic journey, which is exactly what you're talking about. And people are, are waking up to that fact that this is, that this, all of the separation is just an illusion and that there is this implicit underlying unity and wholeness that we have been denying. Uh, and seemingly that denial has been accelerating, but I don't, I, I don't, that's not that denial is not going to win out in the end. We are going to realize our, our wholeness, our, our unity, uh, and we're we are going to transcend above uh, the tribal warfare that we find ourselves in at the moment. Dan, you're frozen again, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go to comments. Yeah, I apologize because I only caught uh, half of that, and I'm not sure it's on on, on my end, but. Uh, but you know, I, it's funny because I was just looking at my back. I've got actually James Nestor's book "Breath" right behind me in my backdrop, <laughs> and it's a brilliant book for those of you who are listening uh, on part of these concepts that uh, Ron's talking about, which is you know not just the necessity of breath and the mindlessness of it because we don't think about it any day. Oxygen's not something we think about till you don't have any, and that's one of the reasons we use that in training. Where I came from is it's a great stress inducer to take someone's oxygen. And if you've been in space, I'm assuming you're aware of that, you know, the absence of it outside of your vessel all the time as, you know, this is not someplace you can be. I digress a bit, but but the fact is, I think that's a really powerful point that you made about breathing and being aware of it. And it's the reason why for meditation, so much of meditation, traditional meditation focuses on breath. And uh, it's a brilliant book. You should after, right after you buy Ron's book, you should buy Breath, and it's right here on the back shelf somewhere. And I really recommend it for people. I, it transformed how I viewed breathing, and uh, it's it's brilliant. Um, uh, so anyway, I, Ron, that's how I would I would add to that uh, that last point. Yeah, and I, thanks to everybody who put in the comments. They're actually coming in faster than I could, than I could process. So uh, we'll, we'll try and get we'll try and get to everybody. But uh, it's interesting that you you brought up meditation because um, the way I understand it, you know, the basics of meditation is basically to step outside of your thoughts, right? To to realize that you're not your thoughts, that you're the awareness that that uh, realizes that you're having a thought, right? And so that's kind of what it's like to be in space because when when I was in space, I was I was detached from the only world I had ever known. I could I could look back and see the Earth from outside. So, in other words, what I basically did is I stepped outside the frame of the masterpiece and was able to see it. You know, I was part of the this painting, uh, this beautifully you know this beautiful masterpiece that was you know framed, and I got outside of the frame and I was able to look back. And 
you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's only when we're able to step outside of that, of, of whatever challenge, problem, situation we have uh, and look at it from the outside that, that it's only then that a lot of things become clear. Um, and I, I'm cautious in when I say that because there's no requirement to go to space to realize any of what we're talking about. And what we are talking about, though, is overcoming divisiveness. And if you can't step outside of the frame, if you can't step outside of your echo chamber walled box, you're not going to see the problem. You're you're part of the problem. And so that's why we need to that's why we need to take a break, you know, just take a pause and and try and see things from the outside. Uh, we can't do it all the time, but but whenever whenever you can try and try and do that. Um, and it is, it's so important to do that. And speaking on behalf of myself and everybody who's listening, Ron, we are all fascinated by the fact that space provides that perspective. And none of us, you're the only person in this conversation, unless there's another astronaut on there, who's had that perspective. And I think it is, not only does it raise this perspective to a higher level physically and, and literally, it, it is what allows us to start transcending. I think so much of the value of humanity is to look at space. We can't, we can't abandon Earth. You know, science fiction, it's a common theme. It's a trope even. It's like, well, Earth is destroyed and we've moved, you know, like a diaspora. But that's not, that's not how it should be, in my personal opinion. But the fact is, I think that's what allows us to, to facilitate our overcoming this base level of negative tribalism and, 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 you know, and, and, and the warfare that goes along with that. To transcend warfare would truly be, in my opinion, the evolutionary step that changed humanity. And I think the space efforts and your experience in there are part of that step. Well, that's exactly why I wrote the book. I mean, because <laughs> I mean, well, that's one of the one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that we are on the cusp of that. We are at a major inflection point where this is the great transition that we're in right now. We're all living through it. Uh, it, it, it. There's never been a more exciting time to be alive than right now because that change is happening and we are all part of that change. And we on every every moment of every day we consciously or subconsciously make the choice whether we're going to participate in, in that what course correction, if you will, participate in this blossoming awareness of, of our true unity or, uh, and, and participate in life, basically, or where are we going to obstruct it? Uh, are, are we part of, are we a unifying force or are we a destructive and dividing force? Uh, and, I am absolutely positively convinced, and, and I do want to close with a with a talk about you know how we see the future. But I'm absolutely convinced that the unifying force is, is going to win out over the divisive force, uh, and we will look back at this time as uh, really really difficult growing pains that we went through. Uh, but it was the necessary price to pay to uh, get to get to fulfill. Uh, to keep us on the track towards our full potential. Um, and so with that, Dan, I, I, I wanted to ask you how you see the future and uh, what, what you see are the path that we're on right now. Is it the path that we should be on? Is there a different path? How do we get on that path? And, and where do you see, see us uh, ending up in, let's say, the next 50 years? Oh, that's such an easy question. I'll just be able to throw it right out there. <laughs> Thanks for the softball, buddy. Um, yeah. No, but, but to, in all seriousness, and I think in, in, in a positive way, because I am a raging optimist, uh, you know, I, I think it's true. It's how you how you go about 
those things, you have to think about them. But, you know, it's not one path only. There are false starts and there are things, there are setbacks. All of those things are are, are okay because what matters is um, it is the best time to have been alive as a human. There's another book back here on my shelf somewhere, Enlightenment Now, and it's really about of, of how to understand why this is a good time to be alive. You people live longer. Uh, if you have access to anything beyond subsistence living, you're, even poverty is different than what it was in the past. Uh, poverty is a problem to be solved, but there's no solution. You'll never eliminate it 100%. But poverty today means you probably still have a cell phone and a refrigerator and, and maybe even a car, in, at least in this country, as opposed to what it was 50 years ago, which means you may not even have food. I'm not diminishing poverty. What I'm saying is these are, so, these are positive evidences that we overlook to our own detriment not recognizing that we are advancing things. So to what I think, why I think I'm positive about the future is time's our friend in this respect. The children that are our children today or grandchildren today are more accommodating, more educated, more aware than any generation of humans going all the way back to the, the Rift Valley at first exodus. And in there lies our salvation because they are more accepting and they are more tolerant. The more that that spreads around the world and we do eliminate poverty so people can advance and spend time thinking about these things and having experiences in life that aren't just trying to get enough potable water that isn't laced with arsenic, that's what's going to allow us to go forward. And I think that's a continuum. And I think that's the, that's humanity's journey. So, you know, going into this, uh, you know, leaving the atmosphere and going into space is just one more aspect of that. But that's why I'm positive, because I think children today are in many ways better than the generations before them. If we have to, if we give them a bit more credit. Yes, I, I think that is certainly true that that, you know, life, life, uh, the quality of life that is provided now is better than it has been in the past. But Tech, and, and a lot of that is brought about by technology. But to your point, technology has not lifted people out of poverty. Uh, and there are, there are you know, right. many, many people, you know, fighting, scraping by every day, barely surviving. You know, you, you, you brought out that this, this kind of, in America, it's, you know, poverty, the poverty level is a lot higher than poverty level in the rest of the world. But, you know, I've done a lot of, um, a lot of work in the developing world, uh, humanitarian work. Uh, I've, I've founded nonprofits. I've, I've founded uh, social enterprises. I've, I've seen this firsthand. And there, there are, um, you know, many, many people, uh, hundreds of millions, if not more, uh, that don't know if they're going to survive tomorrow because they don't have food to eat. They don't have clean water to drink. They're living on way less than a dollar a day. Uh, and we, we still have that, that very, very real destitute poverty. And what I learned through all those experiences, and, uh, it's, and now it's coming out in different, different publications as well, is that the root cause of that poverty is because we, we live in a system that keeps that status quo in place. We live in a, in a system that has artificially set up these boundaries and, and barriers and walls that keep people in poverty. And they keep people in poverty because there's people that are benefiting greatly from the status quo. And we, we are seeing this in the 
divergence of 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 wealth um, and how the you know the the rich are exponentially getting richer and the poor are exponentially getting poorer. Now the the middle is is maybe you know progressing along and 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 that is also by design because if you keep the middle happy, then then there there won't be too many waves made uh, about the people on the bottom. All of this this whole thing, what I'm trying to say, is that this is all artificial. That is not. It is. It's not, those, it's not those poor people over there, where, whatever country you want to – that's us. That's part of our human family. And, and when I say that we are part of one human family, this, it, this is beyond the physicality of DNA. The, physica the physicality of DNA will, will say if we go back far enough, every single person on the planet came from the same mother and father. So we are, we are actually literally all related as a family, right? But but there's an underlying unity that that goes beyond that. That's even more important than that physical dimension, and that's the part that's missing. That's the real part, and all this other part is is artificial. All these systems that are, that are in place, all you know, all the colonial conquests that led to a lot of problems uh, that continues to to bring problems throughout the world uh, are in place because. The status quo is benefiting those people who are who are exponentially <laughs> accelerating their wealth, and so that is. But again, that's artificial, and it's something that we need that we need to address. Um, and I think you know it, it's this is where for countries that are important for humanity that are completely outside of America, China and India, they are struggling with that middle in a very real way. And uh, you know, I'm not here to bash or praise on. Chinese centralized government, you know, you, you can talk about Hong Kong as other things and there's repression of those things. But the fact is there's power in the middle. And that's why governments that are authoritarian fear the middle. Right. The Soviet Union was a great example and it eventually imploded. Now, it, modern Russia has problems now with the middle in a different way, but it's to pay attention to those things, uh, you know, from if you're a government or a policy person, this is back to your point, Ron. I think this is where to pay attention to that, to use that middle to help with find the, it's truly even the word middle ground between the extremes of wealth and poverty and why they're diverging, you know, is, is something that exceeds my expertise, but I think it's essential to do. Exactly. And I want to pop up a comment from Steve. Uh, and he says, yes, uh, poverty is a product of a system that wants and needs people to be divided into rich and poor categories. Scarcity mentality. We, we could live in an abundance-based world. Science can give us that, but those old sociopolitical systems are in the way. So I just, uh, and, and I, maybe this will bring us to a close on, on this episode of the Floating in Darkness live stream event series. <laughs> um, is this idea of a scarcity mindset because that is kind of hitting the nail on the head and, and it's a, it's a fair fear-based mindset. So, so back right. you know, 10 minutes ago, we talked about the difference between a fear-based mindset and an on wonder based mindset and on wonder is, is an abundance mindset where there's enough pieces of the, there's a, the pie is big enough for everybody. Right. And the scarcity based mindset is I need to take the whole pie because I don't know, you know when the next pie might come, come around. So, exactly. That's fear. Yeah, that's fear. And it's fear-based. Yes. It's fear-based. It's it's fear-based. It's fear-driven power grabs is what it is. It's it's I need to grab as much power as I can. And 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 wealth is a way to grab power. And I need to do that uh because basically my actions are, are, are fear-based. And and 
uh, I don't understand that um, really if we solve these problems together, if we join together, if we set aside our differences and solve these challenges, there won't be any scarcity. <laughs> and I, I say that with the caveat that the solutions are never only technical. You're, we're never going to have a technical only solution. They also require us to make a change in our behavior, make a change in our mindsets, make a change in our awareness. It, it requires us to be more open, more transparent. It requires us to be more empathetic or emphatic, uh, more, more altruistic. I mean, all of those things are going to, are requirements to make any of this work that we have to, you know, um, God, I forget who said this now. You, you'll help me out. You know, all change comes from within, right? We can't change the world if we don't change ourselves first. And Absolutely. So, and for lack of a better person to describe it to, we'll give it to Eckhart Tolle. How's that? Okay. And, uh, but I don't, I don't think it's him, and I, I will fail you in that. But, you know, it's to Steve's comment that came on there, well, first of all, I really like that he's got Snoopy on a typewriter because <laughs> Snoopy on a typewriter on a dark and stormy night is one of my favorite little, you know, images from it covers a lot of positive ground. So Steve, yeah. I probably think that's cool. But his point was, you know, sociopolitical challenges. Uh, and I don't see his comment now, but, it, but the gist of that, I think, and I think this is this part of the solution is it politics for as much as we all, all of us who aren't involved in politics, which is 99 point whatever percent of all people on the planet, because most of us aren't in, make our living from politics, but it's, that's the solution because the politics and policy and how governments implement them and how governments view things driven by their population, and that's the big middle ground, will make the change. But it's mundane. It's not exciting. And people tend to fall away from that. But, you know, to me, the mundane and the unexciting are, are the answers to most challenges in life. Um, you'll find what you're looking for if you want real meaning. It may wow you, but you're going to find that it's simple and it's and it is it is every day. That's yeah. I think part of the. To me, that's where I find a lot of joy now, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, exactly, that's that, that's a good point. I think that's a good point to end it because I've gone over. I apologize for that. Uh, I apologize. I also apologize that we didn't get to all your comments. I will do the best I can to go into YouTube and into uh, Facebook and answer all those comments. Dan, you're welcome to jump in there too. Obviously, if you want. But I just want to say thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for all the service to our country, to our world, to everything that you're doing, to, to the messages you're getting out into the world, uh, all the work you're doing. Uh, I, I really think you're, you're, you're setting a good example. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for this conversation that we've had. And I'm looking forward to getting you as a guest on the Orbital Perspective podcast. Um, and uh, we can continue this conversation because it was a really great conversation. And thank you so much for everybody who tuned in um, and uh, and left your comments and questions. It was so so wonderful to have you uh, be a part of this this conversation with us. Ron, thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, to everybody, thanks for tuning in. I hope it had some value. I, I I leave this knowing that one, I think this was a really positive conversation, and two. I still gained some cool credibility points because I got to hang out with an astronaut again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to hang out with somebody who who did 201 uh, parachute jumps in 24 hours. Yeah, it's just logistics, man. 
You've got almost as much waitlist time as I do. <laughs> hey, listen, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, you, you will not go wrong in picking up uh, Ron's book. It's just a, it's a great insight and it builds on the things we're talking about. And uh, Ron, look forward to the next time. In the meantime, be safe out there and cheers, everybody. All right. Th thank you so much, Dan. We'll, we'll, we'll see. You. Hopefully we'll see you on the slopes. <laughs> yeah, I'm All going right. up now. All right. Actually. All right. Everybody, thanks again uh, for tuning in. I want to remind everybody uh, that we've got this deal going on for the next 24 hours. I really want you part of this journey. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think about the messages in the book. I really think the messages in the book are messages that the world needs to hear right now. Uh, and because of that, for you guys who have tuned in and uh, have, have been along on this journey, uh, we have a 25% off code of future at floating in, doctor, floating in darkness dot com forward slash order. So thanks again, everybody. It's it really has been great. Um, we uh, this is episode two. We're going to have five episodes of this leading up to the to the uh, launch date and the publication date of, uh, of Floating in Darkness. And I'm just really really happy uh, that you're along on this journey with us. So take care, everybody. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective, and thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space.